Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Please give a warm welcome to Helen McCrory and Rory Kinnear. Now, I have to deal with the refreshments first. So, Helen, you've got your coffee. Thank you. Would you like some tea now, Rory? Or why not? Why not? Marvellous. Delicious. This is where I... It's not I an electric way to start. <laughs> <laughs> it gets even more exciting when I pass the biscuits round. A slow burn. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, no. And you, what there you've no just said too, madam. There we are. Would you like some biscuits? No, not yet. No biscuits? Thank you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, oh dear, now that my, my host's duties are finished, um, what have Helen McCrory and Rory Kinnear in common? Well, obviously they're both in The Last of the Housemans, the set of which you see behind us today, playing the adult children of uh, Julie Waters' matriarch, hippie matriarch. But they've got a lot more than, more than that in common. For instance, they've both won Ian Charlson Awards. They're both featured in the new James Bond film, Skyfall. And they've both got rather a lot of jock in them when you look at the family trees. And indeed, the, the letters R-O-R-Y occur in both their names. I don't know if you've noticed that <laughs> or not. So Helen, presumably some distant ancestor of yours, son of Rory, Mac Rory, and I can sort of see him with his ginger beard and his... Claymore and his kilt and his bagpipes and all the rest of it. Because your mum is Welsh, isn't she? Your dad's Scottish. Yes. Rory, you've got a lot of Scott in you, and I think I've your mum's got, got a bit of Irish. She's in, got a lot of it, yes. A lot she's, of, she's, so... She's, she's full-blown Irish. Yes. There's not really a lot of English blood in either of you, is there? No. No? no. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we're still allowed to work at the, the Royal at the National Theatre. Well, how, how tolerant is that? <laughs> now, I never know if everybody in equity knows everybody else or whether actors don't know other actors, like sort of normal people. So did you know each other before you knew you were going to work with each other? Had you worked together before? No, but Rory's wife, Pandora, is my husband Damien's, one of his best friends. They train together. Ah. So I've been to Rory's Christmas parties, <laughs> and very nice they are too. Are you famous for your Christmas parties? They are. Uh, we were before the child arrived. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> paid to that. So you knew each other as, as friends before you knew you were going to be working together. So how has it been, with the process of working together? Well, we also, uh, we did, we did uh, work together earlier in the year on, on the Bond film. Yeah. Uh, in which we, we were talking about the play at that time. Um, so uh, I also obviously knew her as an actress, mm -hmm. rather than just someone who hang, hung out in my flat uh, <laughs> once a year. So uh, it wasn't a total surprise to discover what she could do. Ah. <laughs> Helen, what about you? Had you kind of clocked Rory some time ago as an actor as well as a host I saw every his Christmas? Hamlet three times. Well, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. there's praise for you. So how has it been working together then? I mean, how has it been a voyage of discovery? Have you uh, come up things against you, about each other you didn't know? You see, I thought you were yeah. probably going to ask something like this, Alan. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and the problem is, of course, when you're sat next to somebody, then if you try and... Uh, go along the route of, of overpraise. it feels like you're only saying it because they're sat next to you. Uh, but uh, it has, I mean, particularly the, the scene uh, between myself, Julie, and Helen, which uh, yeah. was uh, extraordinary to rehearse and discover with both of them anyway, and even more enjoyable and exciting to play every night as well. Um, and 
whilst, yes, and whilst one, one can't go overboard on praise because one does have to work with her in the evening. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, the, I mean, the, the extraordinary power and versatility she has does, mm. make, does make it very exciting. But the, uh, the, 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 re the real advantage of, of working, I think, with uh, Rory is that, I mean, you can listen and you don't have to act, you can react and that you can constantly change because the other actor... In fact, you can constantly change, in my case, some of the lines, or indeed his cues. And he still says to me, which I did on press night, and just completely drive for the first time in my life. And, you know, completely calmly, Rory just came in with his, his line, and in fact, mine before that, in a way that it made it sound like Steve Beresford had written it. <laughs> and that, no, but that's a... That's a because that, then it means it's fun, and, and you can actually invent on stage, and how Rory will suddenly change in a scene, of course, will, will, will change your performance as well. So are these things that happen in the moment, that you suddenly have an idea or make a gesture or change an intonation or something, does it steal up on you kind of completely, you know, unexpectedly? I think it often depends what you've been doing during the day. Um, uh, and I don't th you can't really force a performance and uh, you certainly don't want to try and replicate a performance that you did last night and might have worked. So it, you sort of bring on what you've, what you've managed to accumulate throughout the day un unwittingly. And it does seem, to, does seem to change every night as a result of that. Um, uh, and I, I, that's the exciting thing I find about doing the theatre is that you're, uh, you're making new discoveries every night. And, uh, and sometimes things uh, work for the first time in front of an audience and you get a, you get a reaction and you can see that, that, it, that has helped that moment in particular. And sometimes you think, well, I know that's never going to happen again, so just forget it. And sometimes you think, well, actually, yes, that unlocks that, that bit. And so it sort of becomes a process that performances become a, a process of continued rehearsal. Mm. I mean, I suppose it's trust that uh, actors share when they're on stage together. Does this come naturally because you knew each other at a personal relationship? Or uh, does, it, uh, does it only happen in the sort of white heat of performance? No, I, I, well, I, don't, I, th I think how you get on with somebody is almost irrelevant. I think it's how, how they make you feel on stage. And, but it's also, you know, you've always done a really good, good speech. You raise your game. Mm -hmm. like, oh, right, OK. <laughs> oh, he's, he's really concerned. Oh, shit, OK, better get my stuff together. You know, but it's that as well. It's, mm -hmm. it's yeah, you, you, have to, you have to raise the bar to, mm -hmm. to, to work with, yeah. Because it's not, it's, I, don't think, I don't think it's competitive, but you still, you sort of urge each other on, in a way, don't you, by hopefully, you know, raising the bar to this, and then you raise the bar a little higher, and so on, and so it goes. It's a yeah, kind no, of... I'm not sure it's about, about raising the bar, because, because that sort of does tend to make it feel like it, it, yeah. it's competitive. It's actually just that curious alchemy of exchange of energies. Um, and sometimes the way you are presented something by another actor takes you off in an entirely different uh, way, and it's just sort of the energy with which they've mm -hmm. presented it to you, so, and you have to be responsive to them. I mean, are there actors who prefer to give the same performance every night, everything done in the same way, or do you feel, are most actors open to innovation and on-the-spur-of-the-moment inspiration? No, in my, in my experience, there are actors that will repeat, and they will do it brilliantly and it will seem as if they haven't ever said that line before. Um, I, I, I prefer not to work that way. Mm. 
Tell us about, I mean, did you say yes, please, as soon as the offer came to play uh, Nick and Libby in this play? Uh, I, when I was at drama school, um, in about 99 or 2000, I was first off a I was about to say, exactly. Um, <laughs> Last week. I was earmarked. I've just left. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I was going through a, what I'd like to think, a healthy period of, of self-inquisition about what, what the job meant and what its effect could be and what its affect could be, I guess. And... Uh, during that period, I went to see a production of All My Sons uh, at the Cotslow that Howard directed and that, um, and that Judy was in. And I sat on the, on the front row of the Cotslow and stayed there for about ten minutes after it had finished. And I came with my mum my and my sister. And I remember going back just in the car that evening and just thinking, yes, yes, this can have uh, an almighty effect and make people question their place in the world and... Uh, reconsider um, what's important in life. And that was just through the quality of, obviously, the writing, but the production, and in particular, the acting. Uh, and I, I've had the great fortune to have worked with Howard twice uh, already in my career. And, but the, the, op- the, uh, the, uh, the chance to work with both Howard and with Julie was, it was quite a, a romantic notion, I mm-hmm. guess, in my, in my mind. And also, and also the script worked. Right. Ellen, what was your reaction? Did you say yes, please, right away? Or I liked the play mm-hmm. straight away. Um, and like Rory, I'd, I'd seen Howard's work and wanted to work with him. Rory and Julie were on board, by the t- and, and mine was a lot of juggling. Mm. My husband's an actor, and he's mm. working in America and North Carolina for five months. So I'm here with the children. So it was working out if we could do that. It's the first time we've ever mm. done that. Um, so that was a big decision. So it's lots of talk. Yes. And then delighted to say yes. Tell us about the relationship between brother and sister. What decisions have you come to? Or are you still making up your mind? I guess what, we had a, uh, about four weeks into rehearsal, we had a, uh, an afternoon or a morning of coming up with our backstories mm. and each, each character presenting theirs. And we thought, well, do we need to talk it through with the other characters? Because really the decisions that need to be made that jointly happened. And, and Howard said, no, I think, I think the point of uh, the characters in this play and ha- where they've come to when we meet them is that they've all got their own very strong version of events. As to, uh, and they all sort of, in some ways, feel themselves the victim of, of events. Uh, and so, no, I think he sort of said, you, whatever you create is, will work. It doesn't have to overlap with everybody else's experience. And actually, we all listened to, to, uh, to, other, to everyone else's versions, and there were some things you thought, oh, yeah, no, that's quite good. I'll have that for, for my character as well. So you sort of made those decisions. But I guess with, with Nick and Libby, these sort of decisions we made, well, when was the last time they saw each other? How often do they keep... In touch, it does feel like he keeps in touch with Libby more than certainly he does with, with Judy. Um, but evidently he hasn't seen Summer since she was six. And, uh, but they probably just speak to her or she comes down to London and maybe or wherever he is at, at that particular time. And they, I guess she wants to make sure he's all right. Mm. I mean, would you say, or do you think that Stephen Beresford uh, believes that Judy is responsible for the way that her children have turned out? Well, I think that he's, he thinks that they think that she's responsible mm-hmm. for the way they've turned out. 
And I think that this is what he talks about in the fifth scene in the uh, kitchen when Nick says, I don't want to do a spoiler if no anyone's quite. seen it tonight. <laughs> I don't think he'll give anything away. Um, we're all responsible for our own fuck-ups. Mm. We all fuck up our own lives. These two people that were abandoned um, as children have blamed their mothers and their mother and in, in many ways are totally right to. She was completely irresponsible. Um, but there comes a time in your life, the playwright believes, you've got to take responsibility for yourself and you can no longer blame your, your, uh, your mother for all your foibles and weaknesses and mishaps. So I think it's, it is about parenting. A lot mm. of the play is about parenting. I mean, you're, you're children, really, compared to some of us, so you didn't experience anything of the 1960s at first hand, obviously. So did you do much research into the kind of the, the zeitgeist, the movements, the cultural, sexual, social There's so much in our culture. I think there's so much in our culture still. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's re rehearsing the... I mean, looking at the 50s or the 30s, I mean, we, we're, we are definitely a result of the seven, uh, 60s, or a, a reaction to. Because I think there's a lot that's admirable, it seems to me, in Judy's intentions, at least, in what she wants to do. Well, she puts mm. herself before her children. Mm. But, I mean, they are dysfunctional. But as somebody said <clears throat> to my mother the first night she came, my mother said, oh, did you enjoy it? And she said, yes. So I thought it fascinating. Of course, I came from a dysfunctional family, and I raised one myself. <laughs> and I think that that's true. I mean, we all look at a family and think, oh, gosh, you know. But, uh, but there is no such thing as a normal family. It doesn't exist. Now that you're both parents, does, it, does that sort of shed any light on the relationships within, within the play at all? Certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the... Uh. <laughs> You know, the, the, uh, I've yet to develop a, a, a fear that an 18-month-old child will turn around to me and say, thanks a fucking lot. <laughs> <laughs> Put the spoon in there. <laughs> um, so I'm sure they'll develop. <laughs> because, I mean, it's, when you think about it, it's as much, it seems to me, it's a, a bit of a cliche, that maybe the right won the economic argument, but the left won the social and cultural argument to some extent. So people like Judy kind of, in their way, were responsible for you know, improving, more tolerant, perhaps. Uh, you could be different and you were more accepted. There's that, that kind of, there's a sort of good thing, uh, the positive aspects of her philosophy, even if, you know, however imperfectly she actually led her, her life. I, mean, I think, I think what, the, what the play in some ways is, I mean, it's... I don't think it's, it's strongly political in terms of actually uh, a critique of any particular generation. I think it says that we are all products of our time mm. and those times are always in some ways a reaction against the time that went before. And I think uh, Nick and Libby's generation um, do have a certain sneering cynicism towards their uh, uh, high, highfalutin ideals mm. of social change. But they, you know, they came from trying to break free of what was quite a stultifying and uh, class uh, sort of rigid structure that, uh, that Judy's parents represent. And mm. then we have uh, in the character of the 15-year-old Summer, you know, yeah. what's, she, what's she going to, to wreak on the world as well? So, I mean, I, I don't think, it, I mean, obviously the central character of, of Judy and, and 
I think it's quite easy to, to mock that kind of uh, character from the 60s, but I don't, I don't think it's a critique, particularly. Mm. Tell us about the kind of uh, influence that your parents had on your, the way you've lived your life, your choice of career. I mean, Helen, your dad was a diplomat, and so you led a sort of nomadic life. Do you think this was a good introduction for being an actor from, you know, having, going from one home to the other, playing different theatres every night, that kind of having to make friends quickly and easily? Yes, I think that it, it, it does, as, at a very young age, teach you to assess a situation very quickly, because as a child, of course, you just want to join into the class and be accepted. So you worked out very quickly who these people were and, you know, what was going on. But more importantly, I think that it taught me from a very young age that there was no such thing as normal, you know, never to take <clears throat> something for granted, because what seemed normal in Tanzania was strange in Paris, was odd in Oslo, or, you know, and that's, that's very, I think that's a wonderful lesson to learn, because I think it makes you have a great trust and sense of freedom in life. Because, you know, one, you can always get out of a situation. <laughs> and secondly, more importantly, that um, you, you'll always be able to find people that you can connect with. And when it comes to the work, it means that everything... I, I do enjoy the research. I do enjoy reading around the subject and around the era and the period. Because, as Rory was saying earlier, of being products of our society, it makes an enormous difference. It really does. So I think it was a huge advantage. I have the, f I don't know if it's true or not, but I have the feeling that you and your sibling kind of run wild across the, I don't know, the African bush or something, that you were kind of, uh, you were sort of meeting the flora and fauna and kind of accepting it as quite natural. I, I, I sense, I don't know if this is true or not, but you, you, you played a lot. We played a lot, but I mean, that's also because my parents are very, um, very funny, very, they never spoke down to us as children, you know, when we were taken, if we were in France to a castle or something, my father would sit and he's a great historian and, and uh, very well, red man would say, this is, you know, this was built here and this would be your armour and how would you attack it and da da da. So there was always a sense of adventure and imagination and even when I see them with my children now, you know, they don't really talk down to them as children at all, you know, and... Mm. Um, Unlike me, when I'm asked, why is the sky blue, I have to go and Wikipedia it. Uh, they actually, you know, were very well read and right. educated and could make this world seem exciting yeah. without reference to an iPad. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so why is the sky blue, by the uh, way? Refracted light. I of know all about it now. Now, do you remember when the first time I met you, I'm sure it was a red letter day in your diary, was that the BBC? You were playing Jean in The Entertainer opposite Michael Gambon and Billy Whitelaw and Bill Owen and marvellous cast. Now, what struck me then was I thought you were an extremely focused person and you knew, you seemed to know what you wanted from your career. Now, that's getting on from 20 years ago now, I think. How has it panned out? Well, all right. <laughs> no complaints. No complaints. Mm. I've always wanted to do work that I am interested in. And again, luckily enough to, to be brought up in Africa where, you know, these uh, magazines and everything never influenced what I thought acting was all about, mm -hmm. uh, has meant that I've always felt very confident in my choices of why I want to do anything. It doesn't really matter to me 
how other people view my career as far as, you know, trajectory or any of that. Mm. And, um, and I've got to work with some amazing people with excellent scripts and something to say. So, I'm Are you still lucky. putting your books together for sort of character Bibles in the way that you used to? Yes. Ah, because you must have quite a few by now. You must you need two houses to, to store them all, I imagine. Yeah, I've got one of those great big, you know, metal file cabinets <laughs> yeah, that's with them. Right. One day when I'm 100, I'll sit down and read <laughs> through them all. So that stood you in good stead, that, that method that you've... Uh, more or less, I, I, you thought it was your own idea, was it, to collect material and all kinds of images when you were... It, it's making actual what Rory was talking about mm. earlier, of collecting all those moments. I think that all actors do it, they, those magpie moments that you discover. It's just reminding myself. I mean, as you were saying earlier on, it's taken a lot of juggling, because I'm not, you haven't mentioned who your husband is. I'm not going to be quite so inhibited. He is, of course, Damien Lewis. So he has a pretty high-profile career, as you do, but you seem to organise it beautifully between you, with two Thank small you. children and several homes in various parts of the world. This must take a great deal of organisation, determination... And, and not a lot of sleep. And not a lot of sleep. <laughs> mm, it's, yeah, it, it, it is all about <clears throat> organisation, but it's... Um, you know, we're having, we're having a really golden time at the moment, mm -hmm. and I'm very grateful for that, because this, like all things, will pass. I so. mean, how do you both... I'd, both, I'd say you were both extremely successful actors in your chosen career. How do you... Is success is just as difficult to deal with sometimes as, as rejection is in your career, in your business? No. Nope. And anyone who tells you that... <laughs> I don't know where you got that idea from. <laughs> But it can, it, some actors sort of rather crash and burn with it if, it's, uh, if their personality is such and the success they achieve is such. So how do you... I mean, what's your definition of success for a could Start in that, from that point. Is it control? Is it choice of work? Is it being able to do good work with people you respect? I mean, give me a definition of success. Well, I mean, I think... It sort of doesn't really matter in some ways what success you have. I mean, you essentially are moving between little little communities of other actors that are considered sort of ring-fenced in that group. Mm. Uh, and then you might do something else and you, you might get shifted along to that. And within that group, you're all sort of fighting for the, the same jobs. Or So, uh, I mean, obviously, it's if you're... If you're an actor, I, th I think it's... I, mean, I, I personally think it's, it's a wonderful life if you're working. And if you're not, it's a, it's a terrible job. Um, uh, so, essentially, you want to keep working, and that's, that's the only... I think that's the only real marker of success that I, I can think of, because I, I hate not working. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, it's, it's great to be doing nice parts and parts that you hoped you might end up doing, and particularly working in theatre, which is, which is what I, my ambitions first were. Um, uh, but, yeah, I guess, you know, it's... As long as you're working, you're creating characters and you're exercising your acting muscles, in some ways it, it doesn't really matter what the profile is. I mean, is it, is it sensible to talk about a career for something as random as your business? Uh, or can you... Is it possible to sort of identify a goal and work towards that in your, in your line of work, what do you think? 
Um, I think most of us are just hiding away from being discovered uh, <laughs> for the frauds we are. Um, so uh, to, uh, I mean, I, I, when I first started, I hoped I'd, I'd be playing, um, well, I, I hoped I'd be working, and then I hoped I'd be playing decent enough parts in the theatre. Um, and, and now that I'm doing that, I just would like it, would like it to carry on, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you'd agree with that, presumably, Helen, would you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now tell us, Roy, since the last time we spoke in something similar to this, you've, of course, given your Hamlet upstairs in the Olivia. How was that? Has it sort of has it changed you as an actor at all? One, one thinks of it as a sort of blooding operation for every leading man that sooner or later he has to uh, give his Hamlet and he gets through that and it's like sort of scars of honour. Any, any scars of honour or dishonour um, as a result? Scar above my right eye from where Laertes threw a sword into it, but apart, <laughs> uh, apart from that. Uh, no, I'd, I'd, I'd never harboured any uh, burning ambitions to, to play it. Uh, and I presumed I probably wouldn't. And I, I am, it wasn't really something that was, was number one on my list. I mean, I don't have a list, so there's nothing on it, let alone, <laughs> let alone a number one. Um, so I, I, when, when Nick asked me, it was, it was a surprise. And then we had a few years to, to wait around whilst, whilst lots of other people did it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so by, by the time it came around, I, I, I'd studied it, I'd written on it at university, so I knew the play quite well. I wasn't prepared for some things. I mean, uh, pu putting it together was incredibly exciting and rehearsing was, uh, was endlessly fascinating and the, indeed the playing of it was endlessly fascinating because there are so many different avenues that you can explore and it's the kind of play that were you to do six months later with the same cast and the same director, you'd have a totally different production because you just, you set off on a track and then you sort of start uh, taking other things in, but when you finished it, you realise, oh no, we could have started going like that. So it's that kind of elastic play. Uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for the f first time we did it. And obviously, you spend uh, seven weeks saying the soliloquies to a to a wall, three three feet away from you, uh, and to do that first preview and to be able to share these thoughts with with twelve hundred people for the first time, I found that incredibly emotionally overwhelming. Uh, and and that continued to be, and I, I presume that is the the seed of what uh, what what people talk about the, the the Hamlet effect, because as a as a role, it's quite isolated. You're quite you know, you're necessarily and psychologically on stage, isolated from the rest of the cast, uh, and sort of there there isn't that much off stage. So it, it's it's actually quite a, a lonely journey in in some ways, uh, except you have this opportunity to share your thoughts with, with a, a new audience every night. And so I presume that is what that, that sort of seed of um, brotherhood uh, that people who have played the part feel. Um, but uh, I, I don't think it's particularly changed me uh, more than any other part, except, that I, I mean, it will always be a, a landmark moment in my life because our, our son was born during it. So um, there, was, there was three months of performing it with relative freshness, and then there was, <laughs> there was there was five months of a black morass. <laughs> I think it wasn't originally due to arrive on your press night. No, no, uh, um, it was at the NT Live was meant to. He was meant to that, that was his due date, which they <laughs> very generously scheduled. Very uh, 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 bad uh, planning on someone. Yeah, luckily, part. luckily he held off for six days, and so in fact he it, the um, he was born at six in the morning, and I had a show that night, and. Uh, 
Um, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to say that I'd fainted during the epidural. <laughs> uh, so I, 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 as, I, as I hit the floor, I bit my tongue and had a, had a bump on my head, sort of the size of a mouse. She was fine. <laughs> it was not a problem. Um, so, uh, yeah, I spent, the, uh, I spent the delivery with a, um, a rubber glove full of crushed ice on my head. Um, the surgeon said to me, are you the fainter? Uh, sit down in your chair. If you do it again, just do it in your chair. Don't try and get up. Um, me with my, my mouse bump. So, uh, yes, that evening I was to be on off to be with my bit tongue. But uh, luckily, when they came, finally came home from Oslo, we had a two-week break, so we, he, he timed it very nicely. And did you go on that night? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Bump and... Bump, bruised rib. Bruised rib. Bit tongued. <laughs> As I say, else. she was fine. <laughs> How was your performance? Was it excellent? Sensational. <laughs> <laughs> I've absolutely no idea. I mean, for the next sort of five, well, probably five weeks, I, I literally don't even remember being, being on stage. <laughs> uh, but I do think if I got through that, then, then everything will be all right. Well, absolutely. <laughs> now, Helen, you, had, you were all set to do one of the Harry Potters when you fell pregnant, uh, but then you went back into it in a different role, as I, as I recall. I mean, how has sort of motherhood, has that made you think about the business and acting in any significantly different way? Um, <clears throat> yes. In, in the fact that I've got a very good reason to stay at home. And for the first, I mean, Manon and Gulliver are four and five now. Mm -hmm. And I didn't work and chose, would choose very sparingly, you know, parts that were in London or I would follow my husband to Los Angeles and be with the children and, and be on family for, for a while. And now they're four and five, they're fine, and I'm back at work. No. <laughs> and now, um, and now, yes, it has, to, it has to be a very something I really want to do in order to do it. But I think that that probably would happen with age anyway, mm -hmm. um, as you become, yeah. Uh, because obviously it's, it's not, not the same for a, a man, obviously, however good a father is, however hands-on he is at epidurals and all, that it's... Uh... I did not perform. <laughs> <laughs> Fainted when asked to perform an epidural yeah, is quite normal, I think. I don't want that anecdote. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> NHS cuts and but all. Exactly. Yeah. But for a, for a woman, it's, you know, you, you particularly, if we talk about the career, that the, the, uh, what you'd achieved in your career, um, the sort of female Hamlet roles were going to be available to you, and you had played some of them indeed. Um, so was it a hard decision to take, to take time out, as it were, and bring up the family. There's not a lot of planning involved in any of it, I don't <laughs> know, Al. Um, so yeah. there was, no, there was no decision. I really, I, 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 I was never somebody who at the age of 21 wanted children. I was never a particularly sort of mumsy person, woman. Mm. And other people's children still have really no interest in me at all. <laughs> I adore my own. Mm -hmm. And I love spending time with them. And I love being a mum. And that surprised me. I was surprised how um, fulfilling yeah. and exciting that is. I mean, how much, do, how much notice do they take of you and Damien's day jobs? Do they understand what it involves, what it's all about? No, I mean, only recently I sat... Um, Gulliver down and said, 
<clears throat> I said, what, what, we're going to work. And they're like, what, what, what do you think we do at work? Because we never mentioned it. Mm. And he said, well, what you do at home, daddy changes light bulbs and you pick up laundry and cuddle us. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, right. I said, well, what we yeah. do is, you know when you're playing That's a game. That's the dresser's job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, when you're playing a game. That's what we do, because we tell stories, and, and grown-ups like stories as well. They're different stories, but we, we tell grown-up stories. That's what we do. Right, what do you mean? I said, well, do you know Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Yes. You know Bert and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Yes. You also know he's in Mary Poppins, and he plays uh, in Mary Poppins. Yes. And this whole talk. So this is what we do. And what you do is you have a different thing and da 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 da. And this went on for about five minutes. And at the end, he just went, Bert's in Mary Poppins. <laughs> not interested at all in any of it. <laughs> so that's it. They came here. I mean, they've never seen anything we've done mm -hmm. or, you know, we never talk about it. And we keep them well away from any of that nonsense. And I came here to show them the set because, you know, come and see where mummy's worked. And Manon just walked away and went, oh, Mummy, you're doing a gardening show. How lovely. <laughs> That was it. Yeah. Gulliver <laughs> refused to put clothes on and just ran around naked with a microphone like yeah. this, going, ladies uh, and boys. <laughs> yeah. Like father, like son, obviously. <laughs> now, Rory, were you like, were you like Gulliver? Did you take an interest in your, what your parents did at that age? Uh, I have very few recollections of being four years old uh, mm. and, and seeing my dad work, but obviously uh, uh, I spent a lot of summer holidays from the age of, sort of six, seven, eight, um, following them around, as mm -hmm. occasionally uh, doing them doing sitcoms and having you know, Sunday lunch on the bus. That was always quite exciting <laughs> on the canteen. And, mm -hmm. uh, and one summer, I, uh, I, sort of me and my dad just toured around when he, when he was touring a, a production of The Clandestine Marriage, and, um, and I was nominally his dresser. Uh, for uh, six weeks for my summer holidays, mm -hmm. which I absolutely loved. And, and that was probably the first time I thought that that was exciting. Um, and I, I remember I was allowed to s sit in the wings during it and watching them all have fun on stage um, and occasionally being, being given attention by nice ladies. Uh, and I thought that this could be something I could do. LAUGHTER uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, but obviously, uh, when my da dad died when, when I was 10, and so I've, I discovered it for myself, mm. really, just through, um, through doing plays at school. I hadn't started acting by the time he had died. Because you did an English degree, didn't you, before you went to Lambda. Was that being on the safe side to get some sort of qualification, just in case acting didn't work out, or...? Yeah, I mean, if it was, I, I'm not sure how intelligent it was. I'm not sure an English degree would get you into many jobs these days, but uh, uh, it was because I liked, liked books and liked mm -hmm. reading. Um, and I guess, I guess there was part of, you, part of you felt that that was a, a, a more secure route, uh, and it was certainly um, encouraged in me by, by my mum and by my teachers. Um, and I acted throughout university, but I, I didn't do as as much as some people did. I did sort of one, one show a term. Uh, and I was kept on enjoying it, but I wanted to know if it, if it was going to be something that, if I immersed myself in it, whether or not it was going to be something I still enjoyed doing. And I think probably up until I went to drama school, uh, I quite liked being on stage and, uh, and the excitement of being with other actors and being in front of an audience. Not sure I 
I was that, uh, I, I delved too deeply into psychological motivations and, um, and fleshing out a character as, as realistically as possible. And so I guess that's, that's what that, that, that process of doing two years at, at Lambda first started in me to try. And it made me realize that the job will be as rewarding as you allow it to be. Mm. Now, you've both done a fair amount of screen work, uh, haven't you? I mean, are you, you, obviously you enjoy it. Is there, does it give you the same buzz that doing a play like this does? Um, or is it, a very, is it a very different high that you get? It's certainly not the same buzz, no, it's, uh, it is a, di a different one. Um, the nice thing about being an actor, if you're lucky enough, is that there are lots of different media to work in, and each one requires a different skill set and a different way of working with actors or with a camera or with, um, uh, with other directors. And, uh, and so, that, so I think if I did any, I don't know how you feel, but I think if I did any of them, just, just one, I'd always be thinking, oh, but I could be doing that as well. Um, so I'd like to make sure that I sort of do keep them all in rotation. Mm. As soon as you finish a play, you want a film, and as soon as you finish a film, you want to play. <laughs> it's just the way... It, uh, oh, there's always radio as well, I suppose. You've done much... You've done a fair amount of radio, both of you, too. Is that... You don't have to learn the script, presumably. Does that have other, other pleasures? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's nice. It usually takes about two days. Mm -hmm. You get to uh, have a gossip in the green room with some people you haven't seen for a while. <laughs> and, uh, and if you're lucky that uh, you're, you're doing something that's well written as well. Now tell us about Skyfall, if you can. I don't think you might, are you sworn to secrecy? This is the, the next James Bond film. Did you have any scenes together in it? We did. Ah. That's it. No, nothing. That's it. <laughs> Otherwise, there's going to be some escort that's going to drive up. You're going to be bundled into the boot. We'll never see you again. All of you. You have to kill us. Yeah. 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 It's, it's well, more secretive it's, than actually yeah. working for the real MI5. We'd have to kill you not trained. Are you, I'm right in thinking you play the same character you played in The Quantum of Solace. I do, yes, yes. This is Bill Tanner. Tanner. Yep. Tanner. And can you describe what he does then, have, since we've uh, seen you already? Uh, yeah, he's the, he's, he's uh, the, the, God, what is he? He's, uh, <laughs> he's the chief of staff at MI5. Oh, right. Uh, so he's sort of M's right-hand man. Mm. And how, oh, <laughs> I can't, you won't say any more than that. Uh, I, I don't know if I can remember any more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, I don't think I can. So. Now, so, unfortunately, I missed your Bolingbroke on Saturday evening. Right. <laughs> Hopefully it's going to be repeated, but what uh, amused me slightly was that you morph into Jeremy Irons by the time of Henry the Fourth, Part One. Amuse you in what way? <laughs> well, I would have thought there might be other actors that you would develop into. <laughs> Uh, yes, I. Who, uh, who was booked first? I wonder. Well, we did ours, and the, and they hadn't cast theirs, and. Um, uh, they were all going to be individual, so the two Henry IVs were going to be cross-cast, mm. but the Henry V had yet to be cast either. Mm. And so they thought they were just going to be two, three sort of standalone casts. But then uh, they thought, I guess it does make more sense if Hal becomes Henry V, the mm -hmm. same actor. Yeah. And so those, but so I guess that, I mean, it, I don't think I'd be able to quite pull off, don't laugh, 55. Uh, or whatever uh, Henry IV is at that period in his life. So um, I guess that's why. And it makes more sense uh, 
rather than to have me with wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you should, would recommend that I should see it, certainly when it next comes up. Do on. what you want. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about future plans? Now, as ever, am I right in thinking you've got uh, an American project next, Helen? Um, <clears throat> there are various projects, yeah, yes. that have been discussed and right. nothing's been signed. So even if it's on IMDB, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. No. In fact, I've actually been interviewed about things on IMDB that I've never heard of. <laughs> never mind read. Yeah. No. No, but, so, but Roy, I, talking of Julie, one thinks of Victoria Wood, and I see you've... Now, you could definitely tell me about a script which is adapted from a novel. It's called... What, Visiting Miss Haddo or something? Uh, Miss Loving Miss Hatto. Yes. Loving Miss um, Hatto. Uh, yeah, it's it's the true story of a uh, lady called Joyce Hatto who was a, uh, a a concert pianist of medium renown during the fifties and sixties, and then sort of uh, suffered very terribly from stage fright, and so retired from mm. public performing. Uh, and then in her seventies, and she was uh, getting ill. She was ill with cancer. Uh, and she, she hadn't played for 30-odd years, 30, 40 years. Uh, and online, some people had found some recordings of hers from the, from the 50s, a recording of Bax, uh, and had put up some glowing reviews. And her, her husband, who had been to prison in the 60s and was a bit of a sort of Walter Mitty character, mm. fantasist, um, he read these reviews and thought, well, we should try and get some more CDs out. And so he started releasing CDs of hers uh, but without telling people that he was just splicing together other people's recordings and slowing them down. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was a feat of great uh, sound engineering, but, but, but lies. Uh, mm. And they got these incredible reviews, and uh, so she sort of became this uh, overnight sensation. And Radio 3 put about three of her CDs as being the... Um, uh, sort of the, the pinnacle of, I think there was a, a Chopin, I think there was a, a Debussy, and this is the if you have one recording, get this one. Uh, and no one really did that much investigation into, <laughs> into where she'd come from and, and her backstory. And they would ask, where, where were these recorded? And he'd say, oh, in, in, our, in our shed. Uh, but uh, so where were the orchestra? Oh, oh yes, they also came, came to our <laughs> shed. There was this German conductor that he'd made up. And, and she actually then died uh, about five years later. And it was only after about six months after mm. she had died. And she had great glowing obituaries in all the newspapers. It was only about six months after she died that a chap put one of her CDs into his uh, iTunes and it came up with the actual mm. uh, Laszlo Simon, the, uh, yeah. the pianist, and, uh, because Grace Notes recognises various frequencies. And so uh, he called up Gramophone uh, magazine and they did a big investigation into it and, and they exposed it all. He, uh, th this guy still maintains, he's still alive, he mm -hmm. still maintains that they were her recordings. He just used little bits of snippets Other because um, that was what, uh, during the quiet bits because that's, she sometimes would groan in pain. Um, uh, and he, what a strange he, story. It is very strange. So I, yes, m myself and an actress called Mamie McCoy play, play them in the 50s and 60s during mm -hmm. their courtship and then and then they, we, we morph, yes, from, from Jeremy Irons into Alfred Molina. <laughs> <laughs> so you, because I, I noticed that Francesca Annis is playing there, is that right? That's right, that, yeah. Because, because uh, you played mother and son, although you didn't in Cranston, because you didn't actually have any scenes together. No, well, we, I had mm -hmm. a scene with her um, 
uh, over her coffin. Uh, yes. But uh, I, th mm. I think she was busy that day. So we <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I told her that you were playing. I, I seem to remember we were talking about Cranford. I think when she was here doing Time on the Conways, I said, well, yes, you know who's playing your son, don't you? She said, no, <laughs> because, yeah. because she, had no, she had no way of knowing that it was you. So it's too late, I passed too late on by the then for her to get out of it. <laughs> now, I can also say it's definite that you'll be returning to Shakespeare in the new year here. Am I right? That's right, yep. We're doing... Um, playing Iago yep. opposite Adrian Lester's Othello. Yep. So... It's the longest part in Shakespeare, just to... No, I think that's been done. I think Hamlet is the longest. Oh, Hamlet's so longer. The oh, well, longest. this will be a yeah, piece so of So we'll just then. move down the... In yeah. yeah, that's... Have, have you started to think about it yet? No, I mean, you get... Uh, we've, we've met up and, and, and mm -hmm. talked... Oh, it, it was very helpful when we did Hamlet. Um, we met up about eight months before we started rehearsals and, and just had a week going through it with, with Claire, who played Gertrude, and uh, an academic uh, that uh, Nick... No, mm -hmm. used to, actually used to teach Nick at Cambridge. Uh, and we sort of went through an act a day and made putative cuts and also came up with initial thoughts and suggestions, some of which ended up in the production and some of which fell early by the wayside. So I think we'll probably do the same kind of thing with, with Othello mm -hmm. as well. Great. Well, we look forward to that enormously. You won't say what's next for you then, Helen, because it's all... No, but I've done things that are coming out. Right. Do <clears> you <throat> want to mention anything? I forgot. Um, well, what about uh, leaving? Yes, well done. Tony Marchant um, script? Yes, I, we did for ITV, mm -hmm. which is going to come out in September. Right. Playing another woman who's getting ensconced in a 22-year-old. My fourth in the row. <laughs> Mrs. Robinson rolls. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yes, a Manchester wedding organiser mm -hmm. has an affair with a posh 22-year-old boy that comes to work in her hotel and wreaks havoc. Right. And it's three one-hours. Mm -hmm. And, I'm, yeah, I've just been ADRing it, actually, yesterday. Well, Tony Marchant <clears throat> is, I think, one of He's our finest writers. Yeah. I think it's been delightful having the Houseman family over for tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Helen McCrory and Rory Kinnear.